Good morning, church family. It is so good to see all of you again. Thank you again for inviting me. That means I didn't get in trouble too much last time. I'll try not to do that either today. Uh, my family sends greeting. They couldn't be with us today, and Lord willing, if uh, they're still next Sunday, uh, they will be here with me again next week as well. That being said, uh, we continue to pray for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to preach at Sierra View Presbyterian Church with their new pastor there. And I know there will come a day also where I'll have that opportunity to rejoice together with you. But we pray that God will bring the man that he has specifically according to his plan for you guys, for your congregation. So we continue to pray for you all as well in your search. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 54. Before we read Psalm 54, it is always a joy and a wonderful opportunity for me to give you the background and the context for why a specific psalm was written. I believe that when we understand the context of the passage before us, we will appreciate the reading and the study of that psalm that much more. Here at the top of Psalm 54 in your Bibles, you will see what is called the superscript. It's this small little title on top of the psalm, usually in capital letters, giving us the background. From this superscript, we learn a few things. First, we see that David is the author of the psalm. And secondly, we see that it is a mascal of David. While many commentators still are not sure about the exact definition of a mascal, we do agree that most of it, most of the time, the meaning of a mascal is it's a wise word or a wise instruction given. So we have a, a wise instruction of David given, and it's designed to be sung with musical instruments. And the exact context of when David wrote this is given to us there at the top of Psalm 54, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us. And all of you are like, oh yeah, I remember that time, right? No, I did not remember that either. Those of you who want to research that more, 1 Samuel chapter 23 will give you the broader context. But let me just summarize to you, because once again, I think you will appreciate what David is writing and praying and praising God for in the psalm, if you understand what he's going through during that period of his life. It was at that time in his life where David was not the king yet. In fact, he was being continually persecuted. He was a fugitive because of King Saul. Saul continued to grow in jealousy of David because of David's various successes on the battlefield to the point where even the ladies would come on the street and sing songs about David and they would say, Saul is great, but David is greater. In 1 Samuel 18, we read that the ladies would come and celebrate and sing, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry at the saying, displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. King Saul grew in jealousy. He grew in jealousy that David was blessed and anointed by God, and therefore he seeked to kill David. 
while uh, David was running away and on the run from King Saul, we find out that there came a time to him when a certain city of Kela was being attacked by the Philistines. And David prayed and asked God, should I go there and defend them from the Philistine? And God gave him the permission to. And as David came in and there, he was once again successful under the hand of God in defeating the Philistines. But that was another reason for Saul to be jealous of him. And so Saul sent an army to kill David. And as David is thinking, where can I hide? Where can I go? He goes to the neighboring wilderness of Ziph. And that's where we get and we finally meet these Ziphites. David thought, these were my kinsmen. These were people who are on my side. They were part of his tribe from which he was born. So David believed himself to be safe there, but that was not the case. 1 Samuel 23, 19 tells us, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish? Now, come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire. Come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hands. So here are the people that David thought he was the safest among, his own kinsmen, his own fellow people of his tribe, and yet they're the ones who have betrayed him now. They're the ones who went and told King Saul exactly where David was hiding so that they can turn him in and surrender him. In fact, David was betrayed multiple times in his life, but this is one of the first times where he was betrayed by his own kinsmen. It's one thing for David to be betrayed by foreigners, by Gentiles, but here he's being betrayed by his own people. So shocked, so upset was David at these Ziphites that in our psalm we'll see he describes them as strangers, as insolent men, ruthless men, those who do not follow God. These men, these Ziphites were opportunists seeking an opportunity to receive a reward from King Saul for betraying David. And so this is the context of the, of the psalm before us. Here in the midst of this betrayal, David comes and he writes down Psalm 54, puts it to music, gives it to the choir master, and he wants this to be an instruction and you might be wondering, well, what is so instructive according to this? What can we learn from this? I don't have King Saul persecuting. I am not in a situation where I'm a fugitive and running away. Yet here, through the life example of King David, we have an example of what we are to do when we are in the midst of difficult situations, when we are in the midst of spiritual warfare, where we are in the midst of time of difficult persecution. And therefore, in this maskul, we get an instruction. This instruction was not only for the people of Israel, but it's an instruction for us today as well. What should be our doing when we find ourselves in the midst of a challenging predicament like King David did? And so in your notes, you will see three simple instructions, three simple outlines in which King David with his own life, illustrates to us what he did when his own people betrayed him. First, we'll see in verse 1 through 3 that King David prays. He prayed to God. 
Second thing that King David does in the midst of this difficult circumstance is that he preaches. In verse 4 through 5, we see a, a sermon of David, if you will. And finally, we'll close today by looking at the end of the psalm, verses 6 through 7, David praises. So once again, three simple, straightforward applications given to us in Psalm 54, uh, 54 as David prays, as David preaches, and as David praises the Lord. And now finally, let's read the psalm, knowing the context, knowing the background that we have. O oh God... Save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sunday. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with my brothers and sisters and to study your word. Father, I want to echo the words that we just sung corporately together. Father, speak to us as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Father, I ask that you would take this truth and plant it deep in us. Shape it and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen in us today. Father, I pray for the hearts of those here today who do not know you yet. May they see their desperate need for a Savior. May they know that there is no other way except for the one that was provided through your Son. Father, I ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of this text before us so that at the end of the day, your name and your name alone would receive all the glory. Amen. So let's start with the first point, David prays. David's first and initial response as he hears of the betrayal, as he finds himself in a life-threatening situation, is to come on his knees before God. And there in his despair, we see David actually asking three things from God. First, David wants God to save him. He wants God to save him. Then secondly, he wants God to vindicate him. And then he asked for God to hear him. And we, in our reading, might be quick to overlook the simple fact that David begins with prayer. Brothers and sisters, is that our reaction in the midst of trouble? Is prayer our initial response when we find ourselves in a predicament like David? Or perhaps we rely on our wisdom, on our street smarts, on our degrees that are hanging on our walls. Maybe some of you, in a difficult situation, you rely on your finances, on your insurance policy, thinking as long as I have this much in my savings account, I'll be okay. My kids will be okay. My family will be okay. Maybe some of you rely on your loved ones, your family, your, your friends, 
Brothers and sisters, those are all good things in their context, but is prayer the first response in our life when we come in the midst of trouble? Because David acknowledged there's no greater help for him than the one that can be found in God. Therefore, David gets on his knees before God. Because according to Psalm 46, 1, David acknowledges that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of need. David comes before God. And his first first request here is for God to save him. But I want you to see the, the basis upon which, uh, the, the, the reason, if you will, on why he's asking God to save him. David is not saying, God, save me because I'm a good guy. He's not saying, God, save me because of all the good things that I have done. Save me because of how many enemies of yours I have helped to defeat. No, David is not listing his accolades as the reason and the motivation for God to save him. But rather, David is praying and saying, God, save me by your name. It might seem foreign to us today to think about someone's name as an important component of the reason and the basis for why God should do something. But for Old Testament believers, they acknowledge the importance of one's name because it illustrated the person's authority and their power described there. Do you remember what happened when God came to Moses and asked him in the book of Exodus to go and deliver the people from Egypt? The first question that Moses had to God is, who, should, who, is, who are you, O God? By what name should I introduce you to the people? In fact, we see in Exodus 3, uh, there uh, Moses says, What is his name if they ask me? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. David is praying on the basis of God's name. He's calling out to God to save him because of who God is. Charles Spurgeon says, By the name, by thy great and glorious nature, employ all thine attributes for me. Let every one of the perfections which are blended in thy divine name work on my behalf. It's fascinating, too, because in this short psalm of just seven verses, David actually prays to God, and he mentions three different names for God. Here we see in his verses 1 through 2 that David uses the Hebrew term Elohim to describe God. Elohim is one of the most frequently used names for God in the Old Testament, and it means and it signifies his might and power as the creator of the universe. So David, when he prays, he says, I am praying to the creator of the universe, to the sovereign one who sits on the throne. Save me because of who you are, not because of who I am. Then secondly, David continues, he not only asks for God to save him, but he also asks God to vindicate him. 
Vindicate is a term that probably we're not used to hearing very often anymore, but it's another way of saying, God, judge me. It's fascinating here that David in this predicament is not trying to defend himself, but he's saying, God, you be the judge of my situation. You vindicate me. Since David trusts in the name of God, he also trusts that he will be a righteous and good judge who will defend him. How often in the midst of challenging situations, we try to be our own defenders. How often we try to prove ourselves right and say, look what I've done. He, David could have easily went to the Ziphites and said, what are you doing? I just defended your neighbors from the Philistines. And this is what you do to me? David could have went on social media of that day and spread the news that he's done no wrong against King Saul and against the Ziphites, and yet they're betraying him. Yet David doesn't do that. He doesn't bash others. He doesn't try to make himself better than the rest of them. He says, God, you are my judge. You vindicate me. You be my defender. David Platt in his commentator says, David knew such a verdict would have to be levied through the serving de- saving deeds, not words. He knew that the only way for his reputation to be reestablished would be as a direct result of God's saving his life. So he was asking for his life to be spared and his name to be cleared. Or sisters, do we trust God to be our judge? Do we come to him on our knees acknowledging that he is a righteous judge who will vindicate us? Or do we go out of our name, out of our way trying to defend our name, trying to restore our own honor? Brothers sisters, do you trust God will be the judge to do that? Do you trust that he's in control, that he's sovereign one who was able and willing to do that on our behalf? And then finally, David's third request in his prayer is that God would hear him and give ears, uh, give ear to his word. There's an interesting play in words here that we move on from David acknowledging that God is the judge to now requesting a hearing from that judge. He acknowledges that God would vindicate him, and then he also acknowledges that God would hear him. Brothers and sisters, have you paused and thought about this reality? That as the children of God, we have an audience with the sovereign king of the world. We have the audience of the creator of the universe. And in fact, the word of God commands us to come to him on our knees. And not just to come to our knees before him wondering if his office hours are open or wondering if he's sleeping during this time, but we have the confidence that he is going to hear us at all times and not only hear us, but if we ask in accordance to his will to give us that which we ask of him. In 1 John 5.14, we read, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. In light of this, my question to you is, why do we keep going somewhere else? Why do we keep going somewhere else in the midst of trouble, in the midst of difficult situation, in the midst of spiritual warfare? Why do we seek for help in anyone other than God? 
If we have full confidence that He hears us, why do we keep coming to others instead of coming to God? For David, this was not a gimmick. This was a pattern of his life. Do you know that in all of Bible, there's a little bit over 200 recorded prayers listed in the Word of God? Out of those 200 prayers, almost one-fourth of them are all King David's prayers. In fact, of all recorded prayers in the Word of God, King David has the most prayers recorded in the Bible. And since God cares about His Word, He specifically, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, made sure that King David's prayers are recorded for our instruction and for our example so that we can learn and benefit from them. And King David often prayed to God. Not just in the difficult situations. He came to God and prayed and rejoiced for blessings. He came to God and lamented. He came to God and asked for forgiveness. He prayed a prayer of confession. He prayed a prayer of praise. Brothers, sisters, are we people that are found being on our knees because we know that our Heavenly Father listens to us? And especially in the midst of difficult situation. David acknowledged that there's no better option, no better solution for him than to come on his knees and make his request known to God because he's praying according to his name, according to his attributes, and according to his power. This brings us to the second point in your notes. For David not only prays, but he also preaches. And you might say, you know what, I'm looking at verses 4 through 5, and I don't see any preaching. Where do you get this? I want you to see a shift of direction, if you will, in Psalm 54 from verse 3 to verse 4. In the first three verses, David is talking to God. He is praying to him. Beginning in verse 4 and verse 5, David is no longer talking to God. He's actually talking to himself. David is reminding himself of the truths about God that he knows to be true from the Word of God. And that's what I mean by preaching. David is quite literally preaching here to himself. Brothers and sisters, one of the most important things we can do in our Christian walk is to preach to ourselves and to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. And you know, some of you have this glance, what do you mean talk to yourself? That's what crazy people do. But brothers and sisters, if we're not talking to ourselves, someone else is talking to ourselves. And we need to be careful, what do we listen to? Do we listen to the lies of the world around us or to the lies of our flesh? Or do we preach to ourselves the truth of God's word? I want to read to you a quote that's lengthy, but I think it's very important. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, highlights this important component of us as Christians spending more and more time talking to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. Here's what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself 
preach to yourself, question yourself, you must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in depressed state and unhappy ways. Brothers and sisters, do you practice repeating the truth of God to yourself? Or do you rather just sit there and murmur and just recount all the negative things that are taking place in your life and have a pity party for yourself? David doesn't come here and say, God, I've been faithful to you, but then these Ziphites came around. God, I did this, but then Saul keeps chasing me. God, I did this and that. No, David says, behold, God, I know who you are. And he reminds himself of this. In fact, look how he begins this sermon to himself in verse 4. He says, Behold. Behold, in the grammar context here, is what we call a demonstrative particle. It means that it's a, it's a quick and fast way to bring attention to the truth that comes after. Brothers and sisters, we need a demonstrative particle in our life time and time again. When we fall into despair over ourselves and say, poor me, we need to say, behold, I know the truth about God. I know what he says. When we keep reminding ourselves about the lies in this world and about how bad I have it, we need to say, behold, I know that's not the case. I know the truth. When the world around us keeps saying, didn't you do this against God? He probably doesn't care about you. You need to come and say, behold, I know that's not the case. For the word of God tells me this is not true. Look at what David says here. He says, behold, God is my helper. David is reminding himself that God is on his side. You can only imagine by that time in David's life, how many people were spreading rumors saying, David, your own people are now betraying you. Surely God's not on your side. David, King Saul is trying to kill you. Surely God is not on your side. David, it's time that you surrender yourself and just stop doing what you're doing. But David says, no, behold, that is not true. For I know that I'm doing everything in accordance to God's will. I've asked him for permission. I asked for his direction. And this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. David is preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of the truth about God. And David doesn't stop there. For he not only acknowledges God to be his helper, but then he continues to preach to himself and says, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Here we have a transition. Remember I told you that there's multiple names of God? First in verse 4, David begins with Elohim again. But then as we continue, we see the change from God to Lord. And that Hebrew term there for Lord is Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew description of God being our master. It reveals a master and servant relationship. So David here says, not only do I trust that the Elohim, the creator of this world, is my helper, but I also rely on my Adonai, my master, who oversees me, who gives me everything that I need. I am his servant. He upholds my life. He literally holds me in his hand. 
While the enemies are telling him, David, you are against God. God is against you. He says, no, that is not the case. He's my Adonai. He upholds me. He sustains me. I am in his hands. He is in control over my life. And so David continually preaches to himself, continually reminds himself of this truth. And then look with me as David continues his sermon to himself. He also says in verse 5, he reminds himself that God is his avenger. It's fascinating to us, but by this time in David's life, he already assembled a small army. He had a lot of mighty men on his side. And David could have easily taken the matter in his own hands. He could have went and said, you know what, Ziphites, I'm tired of you continually ratting me out and trying to kill me. In fact, if you're going to keep studying the book of 1 Samuel, this is not the first and not the only time when the Ziphites betrayed David. Some of his mighty men could have said, David, we can easily take him on and just wipe him out. They are against you. They're not following God. They're acting like strangers and Gentiles. Let's go and take care of them so that they never bother us again. But David doesn't do that. How often do we see that in our own difficult situations? Where our friends and loved ones say, you know what? They have done so much bad things against you. It's time that you pay them back. It's time that you take matters into your own hands. Brothers and sisters, that's why we pray before we preached ourselves because do you remember what david prayed in his prayer he prayed to god to vindicate him and to be his judge and so if he prayed to god as his judge he knows that god is the one who's going to take care of justice then he preaches that truth to himself and he says no god you will be the one to take care of my enemies It is not my job to avenge the wrongdoing against me, but it is you, the righteous judge, who will rule correctly and who will pay back my enemies as they deserve. So look what David prays here in verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. How often we need this reminder as well? How often we need to preach to ourselves and say, no, God is in control. It is not my job to pay back. While the world says, stop turning the other cheek, you say, no, that's not what the Word of God says. In fact, in Romans 12, 19, we read, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Time and time again, instead of listening to himself, Instead of listening to the world around him, David preaches to himself. He preaches the truth about God. Brothers and sisters, do you preach to yourself? Do you remind yourself daily the truth of the gospel? And it's important what you preach. It's not just anything that you should preach to yourself. But if you saturate yourself with the truth of God's word, and then when you're squeezed in the times of trouble, in the times of spiritual warfare, does the word of God come out of you as you preach to yourself the truth of God? That's why time and time again, we need to be in God's word. But I think there's another component. For I think the word of God not only commends us to preach to ourselves, 
But I think the Word of God commands us that we preach to each other. Do you know that you need each other to uphold you, to sustain you in your spiritual warfare? In fact, what's fascinating here that we find out is that in the midst of this persecution, David was on the receiving end of someone else coming in his life. We read in 1 Samuel 23, 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Saul's own son, his dear friend, saw that David was in distress, saw that David was in trouble and fleeing for his life, and he rose and went to the battlefield where David was to come over there and strengthen him. Saul preached to him. He reminded him of the truths about God, knowing that God is in control, that my father Saul is not going to be the one to come and destroy you, that you are doing everything in accordance to God's word. Brothers, sisters, we need a Jonathan in our life to come to us and say, behold, stop listening to yourself, and in fact, preach to yourself. We need somebody to come alongside us and to preach to us. One of the best ways that I receive this on the daily is just by being married. I need my wife to come alongside me and preach to myself when I keep listening to myself. I, we need each other to sanctify us, to grow in the context of our sanctification. The same is also true in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, we are reminded, chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Brothers and sisters, we hate being stirred up, but we need to be stirred up. Because if you don't stir things up, things start to settle. We need to be reminded. We need to have each other to come alongside and to preach to us the truth of God's word. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. I believe that our enemy's number one tactic in our spiritual warfare is to have Christians be at home by themselves. God did not design for our sanctification to be an individual project. But He has given us the church. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His Word. He has given us, dear brothers and sisters, our spouses, our parents, to come alongside and grab a hold of us and say, Behold, have you reminded yourselves of the truth about God? We need each other. God did not design for Christianity to be something that we do on an island. We need each other. Time and time again in the New Testament, there's an imagery of the physical body where each part is relying on one another. There's an imagery on the, the grapevine where you have every leaf and every fruit depending on the root and on the other branch where we are all dependent on one another. Brothers, sisters, preach to yourself. Preach to each other. Remind each other of the word of God. Finally, David not only prays, he not only preaches, 
But then, beginning in verse 6, he turns to praise. There David says in verse 6, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. It is strange here that David so quickly transitions into praise because based on the context, I don't think that David has been, the current predicament in which he's in, it hasn't been resolved yet. And therefore, David is saying that he will praise God, that he will worship him, even though the current predicament is not even resolved. In fact, I want you to see three things about this free will offering that David promises to give to God. First, I want you to see that it's not something that David does as a quid pro quo in order, he's saying, God, if you will deliver me, then I will praise you. David is not making uh, a deal with God. If you do this for me, then I will praise you. No, a free will offering, the very purpose of it is there's no strings attached. There's no covenant being made. There's no agreement being made. A free will offering came out of the person's desire to come and praise on their own volition. This is not... um, an interaction. This is not an exchange of goods that are being made here. God, you save me from this trouble, then I will praise you. No. David is actually, if you look at the tense, he's talking about future tense. He's saying, I will come and praise you. In fact, the language here is very similar to that, which we'll see in Daniel's account when you had these three men in a burning furnace and they know that God, even if you will save us and even if you don't, we will still. And in the same way here, David is saying, God, I pray that you will rescue. I pray that you will deliver me. I preach truth to myself. And regardless of the outcome, I will still come and praise you. Because David knows that he's praying to the God whose name and whose name he trusts. And therefore, he knows that there will come a day when he will have a chance to praise him. Secondly, I want you to see that this free will offering is not something that David does uh, because God will do something for him, but rather he says he will bring this free will offering to God in verse 7 because of what God has already done. Look at the tenses there. In verse 6, David is pointing to future tense. He's saying, I am going to do something. But look at verse 7. David is now looking at the past tense in verse 7. So what David is saying is, I'm going to praise you, not because of something that you will do for me, but he's saying, I am going to praise you because what you have already done for me. Our praise and worship is not because God will do something for me, right? That's the prosperity gospel. You do something for me, God, I will repay you with praise. No. Biblical praise and worship, I will praise you and glorify you because of who you are already and what you have already done for me. That is true worship. It's a response to what God has done in our life. Verse 7, David says, For he has already delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. 
One of the commentators says, when we find ourselves in the midst of struggle, it is important for us to remember and acknowledge God's track record of all the times He has delivered us in the past. Brothers and sisters, do you remind yourself of God's track record in your life? Do you preach to yourself God's track record of blessings and deliverance and provision in your life? Or do you just sit there and listen to your murmuring and your complaining about all the things that you don't have? Do you remind yourself of God's faithfulness, His track record of provision, His salvation, His blessing you of spiritual gifts, His gifting you of fellow brothers and sisters, of giving you a community of believers that you can come and stir one another up and grow in sanctification? Do you remind yourself of what God has done? This is what David is doing here. He's reminding himself, he's preaching to himself, and he's praising God for it. One of the best ways to deal with difficult situations is to praise God. Remind yourself of what he has done for you. Look at his track record. Look at the track record that spans generations and thousands of years of God's faithfulness. And the only reason this works is because our God is immutable. He doesn't change. And therefore, if his track record of faithfulness was true in David's life, do you know that God's track record of faithfulness is also true in your life? Because our God doesn't change. Your best friend, their track record might be good now. Check with me in five years. Is their track record still going to be the same? Your spouse, your children, your loved ones, We should not even talk about political track records. Those change and move and shift from time to time based on their convenience and their financial opportunity. But God remains the same. And therefore, our foundation for worship and praise is that our God has done something in the past. And we know that he will do something today and tomorrow because our God remains the same. And finally, I want to conclude with this. The free will offering that David is talking about here was never designed to be given in silence in your own tent or your own room, if you will. In fact, most of the offerings that were commanded in Old Testament were to be given in corporate worship. Deuteronomy 12, 6, where the instruction is given to the nation of Israel, there it says, And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offering, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all of you that you, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Brothers and sisters, the freewill offerings were designed to be given in a community of believers and therefore David is saying I can't wait to praise you for what you have done in my life and to tell others about it once again another way in which as I mentioned already Christianity and mainly our sanctification was never to be done in your living room by yourself But rather, the Word of God continually reminds us that we need to come around with other brothers and sisters and praise Him together. Share about the God's blessing and His provision with each other. Encourage one another. In fact, that's how you stir each other up. 
is you see your sister or your brother struggling with something. Come along them like Jonathan did to David and strengthen their hand by reminding them of God's faithfulness in our life. Do you do that to each other? Finally, let me conclude with this. We frequently ask people to join us in praying for God's help with some crisis in our lives. But too often we forget to circle back around and report when he, has com- when he comes through for us. God's deliverance is something to be shared with our brothers and sisters so they can join us in worshiping him. Brothers and sisters, have you shared God's blessing and provision in your life with those sitting in this sanctuary? Have you joined together in worshiping? Worship is not just the repetition of psalms and hymns that we do. Worship is the recollection of God's faithfulness in our lives that we share with each other and then through that give glory to God for. That's why a lot of the psalms written in the book of Psalms were actual accounts of what God has done for them and the response for that was to come together and sing and praise and glorify and pray to Him. Simple outline yet very convicting one. In the time of trouble, in a time of challenging situation, in the midst of spiritual warfare, David prayed, David preached to himself, and then he came and praised God for his provision. Brothers and sisters, will we do the same? Will we remind ourselves through prayer, through preaching, and through praise of who God is and his faithfulness and his track record on our behalf? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms that remind us of who you are and who we are. Thank you for the life of David, that you have used him as an instrument to sanctify and to instruct us, that his prayers in your word are recorded there for our example and our instruction. Father, I pray for the hearts of those here today that maybe are in the midst of that spiritual warfare, in the midst of that depression a season of difficulty, a season filled with tears and confusion, a season of betrayal, perhaps. Father, I ask that they would find themselves on their knees, that they would seek refuge nowhere else other than you and you alone. Father, I pray that instead of listening, that this congregation would be quick to also preach to themselves, not just listen to themselves, that they would be quick to remind themselves of your blessing and provision for them. And finally, I pray that this congregation would be known throughout the city of Fresno as the one that comes together to praise you and to glorify you for what you have done in their lives so that your name and your name alone would receive all the glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.